Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hi everyone, this is Stephen Moe and I'm so glad you could join me for this show because today we get to speak with Dorinda Britton, who studied and worked in design for nearly all of her life, and she founded the Britton Institute. So in this interview with her, we're going to talk a lot about design. Here's an excerpt from my interview with Dorinda. Design needs to grow up and needs to move out of the, the realm of the physical. It's boundaryless. It, it really is about critical thinking. And so for the last five or six years, I've had a real struggle. Do I call this critical thinking or do I call it design? My preference would be to call it design. I've been developing some critical thinking tools for an organisation recently. We're calling it critical thinking because that's the slot that it needs to fit into for young people, mm. teaching them the skills of thinking. But it's related directly to it's the same thing as I call design. Mm. Design, critical thinking. Mm. Asking right. the critical questions. Mm. Now in next week's episode, we're going to be speaking with Sam Broughton, who's the mayor of the Selwyn District. And that's been one of the fastest growing areas in New Zealand. And it was really great to be able to sit down with him because he's one of the youngest mayors in New Zealand and brings a really fresh perspective to his leadership. If you don't want to miss out on that and other upcoming episodes, then hit subscribe. And there's also more than two dozen other conversations with people who are making a difference in the world that you can listen to in the back catalog. Now let's get into the interview with Dorenda. So it's a pleasure to welcome Dorenda Britton from the Britton Institute. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, and today we're going to be talking quite a lot about the Britton Institute and what it is that you're involved there. And I'm really curious, especially about the design principles. Um, but I just wonder, before we go into that and um, understand what you're involved in now, I always like to start interviews by finding out about a person's background and where they're from, what their family was like, so that we can kind of trace a bit of their history through their childhood and then what came later. So um, do you mind telling us a bit about yourself? I came from quite an unusual family at the time. Uh, I was born in 1948, so I suppose a post-war baby. Uh, when the world was supposed to be getting better and better endlessly and um, we could occupy more and more space in the world, we didn't have any worries about it, all the problems had been solved. And I guess that my father was a, um, a very successful businessman on a New Zealand scale. He went and studied in the States, um, had a mentor in the States and went away and studied when I was very young, came back with very American ideas. And I remember the conflict as it started in our family because our mother was very interested in nature, had been brought up on the West Coast and my father came back from the States with all these ideas. Mm. And it produced quite a, a, a quite a, a conflict hmm. and discussion. Discussions were always very um, tense in our family, I have to say. Uh, my younger brother uh, ended up being quite well known uh, as an engineer in the world, uh, John Britton. Um, he got a lot of attention in our family simply because he was a boy. <laughs> and uh, my sister and I were taught to be seen and not heard. Um, they picked the wrong one with me because <laughs> I've always um, felt it necessary to say things as I see them. 
and uh, yeah, and I had for a mentor my mother's brother on the west coast, uh, who was an artist and a thinker, an original thinker. In fact, he only died three years ago, and um, I had the privilege of nursing him in his last few months. So I think that um, coming from a family who was very business-focused on one side and very focused on nature and the softer things on the other was a really interesting upbringing. Um, I went to art school. Uh, I think I fought for that, as I remember, because young women of that age didn't have a future in education. <laughs> um, but I, I fought uh, all the way through school to do art. Typical me, I suppose, I wanted to do art and Latin because I'm interested in literature. There was no such combination available. Everything I've always wanted to do there was, was never there. Hmm. Um, if you were artistic, then you had to do drawing and you had to fill in the blanks in printed pages and such like. Um, yeah, you weren't clever enough to do Latin. And, and I, I think I started to get a bit of a complex about it <laughs> in the end. You know, if you were artistic, you were a bit not so clever. And so just take us back, you know, thinking about high school days. Yeah. Or was that an era or at, at, at that time, did you know what you wanted to do with your life? I knew it wouldn't be going with the, the flow. Right. I've always known it wouldn't be, it would be up against the status quo. I think a tough upbringing, it was, it was loving, but tough prepared me for that. Mm. Um, my father was very keen on us standing up and facing things. Mm. You know. um, in fact, <laughs> I remember my father um, writing me an invoice for some services he reckoned he'd supplied me with. <laughs> <laughs> and um, whenever we got, we didn't have pocket money in our day, we were given money occasionally for a specific project and we had to report on it. You know. um, yeah, there was, there was nothing ever... There was nothing ever thrown at you. Right. Um, it was a... You had to work to You get had to work for it. But, you know, so saying uh, there was money in the family to do things. Uh, so I, I was brought up in a family with resources. Um, and yeah. where, where were you based at that time? In were Christchurch. You? Yeah, in Christchurch. And our parents travelled a lot overseas. When they came back, they always had sort of brought in different perspectives. Mm. Mm. It sounds like quite an interesting childhood to, to have many different influences there. I think so. When I spent time with my uncle on the West Coast, who I dearly loved, he was an extraordinary man and he had artists and writers and other creative people living with him all the time, hmm. right on the edge of the ocean. Um, I was very in a very privileged position. I think actually my parents sent me there to get rid of me on the holidays, but <laughs> I never wanted to come home. Right, <laughs> and it sounds like you learned a lot from him. Well, I learned to be unafraid to answer, ask questions because he would never answer a question. He would always pose questions and say, well, what do you think? He would mm. never supply the answer. He would make you think and he would drive you to find an answer. I think that's, that's good, mm. yeah. Well, that's, that's like the, the purpose of true education, isn't it? To sure. actually have an inquiring mind. Sure, yeah. Mm. Well, my formal education wasn't like that at all. Mm. It was rote learning. Mm. Um, 
and uh, and when I went to I, I went home and studied because I really got asked to leave school basically one way or another um, but I had my university entrance I went away and um, did a portfolio to get into art school got into art school and then discovered the same rules applied you do what you're told to do and you mustn't ask questions and uh I didn't quite finish. I think I was about six weeks before finals before I just, I pushed one barrow too far. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Got sent down the road from there as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, uh, I refer to that education quite a lot. I studied design and it wasn't design as we know it today. It was graphic design, moving things on a page. But there's something about the discipline of moving entities on a page that never leaves you once you learn it Mm. it's about balance and I've been fortunate to have been able to think about that and to apply that to my life in general Mm. it's all about balance Mm. and I, I would say that it's influenced me where I am now that I think that everything we do in life needs to have to answer to a balanced lot of criteria Mm. And you trace that right back to that education. I trace education. it back to there. Yeah. To, um, you probably laugh, but my design uh, tutor had us moving dots around a page for a whole term. So we got these little dots that had just come on the market. We got blank pieces of paper and we had to describe scenarios just by arranging dots on a page. That is a fantastic discipline, and it influences me a lot today. I mm. can't quite say how, but it does. It's left a legacy, though, it sounds like, that yeah. that has carried on. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So what happened next in your life? I ended up leaving art school and going to Auckland and working on various book illustrations. Mm. I ended up throwing a coin onto a map and spinning a match and ended up getting a permit to go to Papua New Guinea wow. in 1970, which was quite difficult to get into the country then. So talk us through that. How did you, uh, how did you use that as your basis to choose? <laughs> I read a book called The Dice Man, which is now a bit of a cult book. I think the author, if I think very hard, his name was Luke Reinhardt. He was quite mad, of mm. course. Um, and he maintained that in the 70s, life was full of options so full of options then that people were frozen like rabbits in the headlights, I suppose. Hmm. Um, They couldn't make a decision. So he came up with the idea of writing a list of six options and throwing the dice. Hmm. So I did it. Wow. And it landed on Papua New Guinea. So I had to go there, didn't I? Yeah. Yeah. Well, if it it landed there, then I had made up my mind that I would follow this. I think I'm a natural gambler. Right. I can't buy a lottery ticket. I start to shake, but I'm a natural gambler in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And you didn't feel the temptation to roll it again and see what. No, 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 no. It took quite a while to get into New Guinea in those days. It was quite protected. And I ended up with government jobs, the police. Hmm. And um, when there was a riot and I was the gun controller (laughs) (laughs) and all sorts of things, malaria service out in the bush uh, with a driver um, and the consequences of that, what we did in those days, the spraying of DDT has dire consequences. Hmm. So I started to open my eyes to what was happening. Yeah? Hmm. Um, Yes, you get rid of the mosquitoes, but at what cost? Right. Yeah. 
So, and it was in New Guinea that I met my first husband and he was a sea captain, went to sea on small ships Mm. and we were sailing through the Booker Passage, which is between Mm. Bougainville and Booker Island, north of mainland New Guinea. And I tell the story many times and I guess I tell it differently each time. (laughs) But to port was brown, glinting in the sun and to starboard was green glinting in the sun and you're on a small rusty hulk going through the channel delivering beer Mm. to outposts Mm. and it turned out that the trade store that was selling uh that was glinting on the on the brown glinting shore was selling san miguel beer from the philippines and the shore that had glint and green glass was selling South Pacific lager from made in New Guinea. And there was no return. Mm. You just dumped the cargoes, and we had the cargo, and we were about to dump it, disgorge this cargo, create havoc with the locals who were all drinking heavily. Mm. There was nowhere for the glass to go. The only people that were trying desperately to help were some missionaries Mm. marooned on these islands with you know, the inevitable consequences of of alcohol. Mm. And um, I started thinking about it. And that was a real turning point for me, is thinking about how we might create a return service at least and get some of the money for returns back to the islands as a first step. Uh, We lost our contract uh, with beer, um, for carrying beer. I could never prove that it was a direct consequence of that thinking, but I'm pretty sure it was. Mm. I mean, they were in the business of delivering beer, nothing else. Yeah. So. I, so it sounds like there's some key events that are happening yeah. here. For example, the you know the spraying for the mosquitoes, getting yes. rid of them, seeing yeah. the consequences, yeah. seeing the consequences of the alcohol that yeah. is being delivered. Yes. Um, so you trace back to those events. Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and the and the education that I had. Um, via my uncle who had been asking me these difficult questions for a long time I started to mm. see evidence of what was happening mm. in my own world and the consequences yeah. yes yeah. indeed yeah. yeah well what happened next I think we've got to skip a few years <laughs> that's fine <laughs> I had uh, I brought up three children yeah. uh, on and off there of my uh, first husband's three children had two mm. more children mm-hmm. tried to educate them uh, and was this all living in PNG? Or living on ships mostly. On ships, okay. Uh, not an easy way to educate children. No. So um, days before the internet, of course. Mm. Um, and so eventually things went quite badly for us in the shipping business and my husband got very badly hurt and I took the children and went through Australia to New Zealand mm. um, and my stepdaughters went to their mother Mm. Mm. so I ended up in New Zealand with two young boys and I never went back Mm. yeah I ended up in Australia Mm. yeah oh wow sounds like quite a hard time then (laughs) well yeah it was a hard time but you know things have a habit of turning out the way they're meant to I'm a a bit like that. that is that your philosophy on life that that those hard times lead to other things? Oh, absolutely. I think, I think, I worry about people whose lives are cosseted and easy because one day they're going to face something Mm. they're not ready for. Mm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't think I've ever shied away from 
difficulty. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, that may be unwise, but anyway. Um, so I spent 11 years in Australia. I had two more children. I tried being a housewife. This time I was married to a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, I studied painting, did a few more things, read a lot, but was quite unsatisfied. Right. <laughs> um, Australia's a hard country to do anything different in. Mm. It's, you know, you've, been, you've yeah. worked there. Yeah. The state system really precludes you, makes it very difficult to talk to the people you need to talk to mm. countrywide. Mm. And, of course, the politics are a nightmare. So my brother rang me and uh, our father had died um, pretty tragically and left the family business um, needing a lot of decisions. And my brother called me and said, I don't want to do it. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to actually be cleaning up um, our late father's business and I should come over. Right. And do my job. <laughs> <laughs> as so, the oldest sibling, I as guess. The oldest do- <laughs> as the oldest sibling, yeah. yes. So yeah. anyway, um, once again, I talked my husband um, and my children into coming over. They didn't want to come, to be, tr- to be fair. Mm. Uh, and I did what I needed to do for about 10 years. Um, managed property and helped manage John. <laughs> Travelled a bit with John, a lot with John in the early days. Yep. And then when he died, there was a lot of cleaning up to do mm. in terms of the family and mm. a lot of things. Then I decided it was time to move mm. and um, started thinking about what I wanted to do in life. And I guess by then I was close to late 40s. And I set up a company that I called Design Industry for a number of years. Um I ended up in direct competition with the Better by Design government's program. Um, And it's not a place you want to be in. But I used it for a long, I suppose it was a long R&D period. I used it to try new ideas, to try new places for design in terms of getting into IRD and um, developing tax design methodology, things like that, getting into science trying to actually test different parameters, mm. getting into the high-tech, early stages of the high-tech industry in New Zealand. Um, but I should have abandoned it a lot before, I, a long way before I did. But um, that's a part of my nature that I don't really like, is mm. that I'm tenacious. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to talk about that design mm. side of things, because yep. I know that you're still involved in that, yep. even today. Uh-huh. Um, but before we do that, could we back up just with your brother I think people who are interested mm-hmm. would be interested in you know or they'd like to hear maybe a little bit about your memories of him as well and your being involved with him I guess was that in the 1980s that you got the call 1990s. to come back 1990s mm-hmm. yeah so yeah obviously for New Zealanders he, he, he became quite an iconic figure yeah John had a lot going on in his head John was a dyslexic kid who needed to prove himself. I'm going to give you my version of the story. Um, he needed to prove himself in order to be heard because John wanted to do other things in his life. But when you're a dyslexic kid, you can't read and you're embarrassed by it and you don't have any degrees and anything like that. You need to do something really big mm. in order to be noticed. 
and John did what he could do best is um, sit at the drawing board and come up with new ideas for engines. You know, um, he had he had been playing around with motorcycles for some years. He had dug up an old motorcycle out in the in the countryside at one stage and done that up with a friend. And uh, so it, one thing led to another, and he started to build a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess the similarity between John and I, there aren't many, but there are some. And um, one of them is that you get an idea and you're ready to go with it. You're ready to commit your own resources to it. You don't wait for someone else to give you the money. Mm-hmm. Um is that because you believe that it's a good idea and you can have No, the you just for want it? to take it to the end to the to, right to the very end mm-hmm. and see what you can learn from it. And I think waiting around for, you know, many of my friends work in, you know, different organizations, big organizations and they'll say to me, "Well, when we get the funding for this, we'll do that." But we were wired differently. We were wired if we believed in something, we believed something was exciting or compelling enough make your sacrifices for it mm. and learn from it mm. you know i think both of us suffered from not being able to pull the pin when it was obvious we should have pulled the pin but. right <laughs> yeah <laughs> but that attitude i like the way you described it and do you think where did where did that come from that you would both have that does that have something to do with your father as well and his influence do you think or yeah our father was also dyslexic our dad had to work very hard to overcome dyslexia. He was a city councillor. He had a lot of reading to do. Mm. I think I'm not dyslexic. I read very well. So I can only imagine how difficult it is when you have something like that to overcome. Mm. And you have to hide it. It wasn't talked about in those days. Right. It was something you hid. And I only have admiration for people who could rise above it. Mm. So, yes, in that way, my father was very tenacious um, yeah, I think I also have some of the gene, genetics of, of my late uncle. Whoever knows. My family, my mo- mother's family, come from Shetland, mm. right up in the North Sea. Mm. Um, hard life. <laughs> uh, not, many, not many resources. So, you they, know, so think, they'd had to make do. Yeah, and, it's, it's, and it's some of that genetics. Yeah. I, and I really don't, I don't really have an answer. I don't dwell yeah. on that much. Yeah. Except that I know I'm driven to com- to complete something which is bigger than myself, yeah. and I love New Zealand, mm. and I feel very fortunate to be back here. Mm. It nearly didn't happen, and I don't like what's happening in New Zealand. We've ceased to be brave. We are not even fast followers. We're slow followers, and um, yeah, I-, I find that really sad. Mm. Yeah, we've we've been at the front end of a lot of really good things in the world. Um, yeah. Well, let's just let's go there since we're talking about that. Can you unpack that a little bit more? What is it something that you think in the past it was different, or is it a new? Yeah, is it a new way of thinking that has been lost, or or what? What's your take on that? I think we're, we're hugely risk averse. Um, and we we don't see ourselves that way. I don't think we're very honest with ourselves to be as a nation. To be to be truthful, I think we see ourselves as risk takers, world leaders, and everything. We punch above our weight. We mm. do all that sort of thing. But where's the evidence? 
Yes, there are successful people, and every day I read of successful people from New Zealand. I've just been up at the Innovation Awards. I have a lot of admiration for people, but I don't think we do that any more than any other country. Mm. Really? Mm. Where is the evidence? Mm. And I think we have to. And I, and I think New Zealand has a, an amazing, and I would say unique, opportunity to be different in the world. To we have got assets that a lot of countries would like to have. Mm. We're wrecking them. We're diminishing them. What if we actually created a country that valued its citizens and valued the environment in everything we did and created authentic products and services and showed the world how to do it? What if? Mm. That's what gets me out of bed every day. What could we be? And I know I shouldn't, I don't really have the right to talk like that, but I feel compelled to. Mm. Right? If somebody really loves this country and wants their children and future generations to have the benefit of what we've had, then we have to work hard. Mm. And it, yes, it's about creating a financial return because that's the way we measure success these days, but we have to do it in a different way, mm. not the way we're doing it now. Yeah, no, that's good. That's really challenging. Yeah, it is challenging. Yeah. And so that's what guides the Britain Institute. Mm-hmm. And I find it, a, we find it a very, very difficult thing to put words to. It is such a big idea. Mm-hmm. It's constantly changing how we try and describe it. But I do think, if you'll permit me to say, yeah, that's I fine. do think that, um, and you'll have to forgive me for this, I think lawyers and accountants can't be the decision makers for the rest of us, mm-hmm. uh, that we meet, and I hate this word, but we need more diverse inputs into decision making. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's another word that, you know, has been kind of overused, mm. along with purpose, I guess. We need to invite in different thinkers into our conversations. And those thinkers might be people who don't fit the formal education system, mm-hmm. because I meet them all the time. They're brilliant. They have ideas. They're not afraid to think differently. Mm. They're not bounded by what they've learned. Mm. And I think we need to learn to work with them. So in terms of the Britain Institute, we start every conversation understanding purpose. What is it? What are we here for? And have we got the right people around the table? Mm. Now, I call this design. Mm. Most people don't. But I've practiced as a designer Um, I've been surrounded by the design world off and on most of my life, and I don't think design asks enough questions. Mm. It assumes a lot, but it's not asking the really, really critical questions. Mm. Well, let's talk about those questions, but I think when you use the word design, you're using it in a different way to what I would normally think of design. So could you just expand or give us a definition of what you're meaning when you say design, because it sounds like it's more all-encompassing potentially or at least more applicable for thought processes, for example. Sure. Well, the way I was taught design had a very narrow focus, which is why I lost interest, basically. I can remember lying on the floor once looking at a piece of furniture. Probably my mother, she had she created beautiful things and she had furniture made and looking at it and thinking, actually... That's beautiful, but it's a bit dumb. It doesn't do anything else, but it's a box on legs. Mm. What else could it do? And I didn't have the answer, Mm. 
But I think that design needs to ask those questions. Uh, is it in the right material? Is that material sustainable? Yes, we get that. We're all talking about environmental design. But what advantage does it bring actually to the person who purchases it other than purchases it other than a look, filling a space? Does it enable them to tell a story about it that's a good story? Perhaps furniture is a bad example, but I think gradually, as I've thought about it for the last 40 or 50 years, 50 years, I think it applies to everything we do. And having, with my previous company, experimented a lot in different sectors to the point where I never made um, money because I was always spending time evaluating the work we were doing, is that it applies to everything. If you are creating a product, a service or a system, if it doesn't fulfil the needs of real people and advantage them, empower them to do what they need to do, then you haven't achieved anything. Mm. So good design is about empowerment, and I think what you're saying is that that then applies to the thought processes or the, the ways of doing Everything. other things. Yeah, so Everything. it's not simply, I want a chair, no. I'll design the good chair. No. You're saying it's, it's much broader than that. Design needs to grow up and needs to move out of the, the realm of the physical. It's boundaryless. It, it really is about critical thinking. And so over the last five or six years, I've had a real struggle. Do I call this critical thinking or do I call it design? My preference would be to call it design. I've been developing some critical thinking tools for an organisation recently. We're calling it critical thinking because that's the slot that it needs to fit into for young people, Mm. teaching them the skills of thinking. But it's related directly to it's the same thing as I call design. Mm. Design, critical thinking. Mm. Asking the critical questions. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a really challenging concept, I think, because... For most of us, when we hear the word design, it would simply be, like I said, you know, oh, I'm going to design the table or I'm going to design the chair. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it is very challenging. And I'm apt to forget that mm-hmm. because it's been in my head for... Yeah, you've been in it so long. 30 or 40 years yep. wondering. And I, I do catch myself sometimes and I think, gosh, you sound really arrogant about this. Mm. I'm not meaning to. It's just that when you're inside something for so long, mm. you forget. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so that is, that's why you set up the Britain Institute, because yep. you want to focus on design principles? Is that yes. the, the basic? The questions that we need to ask to make sure we create authentic products, services and systems. Mm. We can be proud to be associated with that involve, that do the best for our people and our environment mm. and bring us a fiscal return. I think... You know, we've got to look at some things, and I hate to to roll out the poor old dairy story again, but one of the things that uh, the moment I knew I had to close my former company down and set up the Britain Institute, there were two things that happened in my life. One, I got a call from New York from a friend of mine called Brian Sweeney, who has a company, Sweeney Vesti, in New York. They're PR people. When are you going to do it? Mm. Um, and a few weeks later I had a phone call from a client asking me to consider a project which was so appalling to me in terms of its environmental effect that I was in Australia at the time I rang my accountant and said help me I don't want to run this company anymore Mm, (laughs) mm. so 
you know, even though I was thinking about it, I hadn't been brave enough to make the move until those two things happened. Right. And it was the combination of those that absolutely actually it is. Then you, you know the, it's the time. Yeah, it's the right moment. It's the right moment. Mm. And also, I knew that I was running out of time to do something. Mm. Yeah. And three or four years ago, there was no such discussion, even three or four years ago, about these things. Mm. So, um, you know, and the, the concern I have about about dairy, poor farmers, you know, I feel really sorry for them, but yep. things have got to change. Mm. Forestry before that. There's lots of examples. Mm. So yeah. the Britain Institute you set up to focus on these things. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about what, what that involves and what you're doing through that? The Britain Institute is, is primarily set up as an educational organisation. Um, we want to demonstrate to people the power of thinking more broadly mm-hmm. about our actions uh, about purpose, mm-hmm. about bringing diverse minds to the table, about separating ideas from ego, very important, mm-hmm. so they can be heard and tested. There's a lot of discipline in our process. I think, and that's what we're concentrating on. So I think that as a startup, and we're still a startup, it's a long process, is that we are creating a 10 module, a, a online course that we are in discussions with a a tertiary institute about licensing. Uh, That's our model. We need to just clip the ticket on a licensing model. Um, We need to uh, hopefully be paid for updating that material. We need to train the trainers, Mm -hmm. Uh, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. We don't want to be employing lots of people. Mm -hmm. We want to have an effect and why not work through existing channels. So it's a big thing to do, Mm. a 10-module online course that's interactive and dealing with new subjects is really quite a challenge. Mm. So we're beta testing at the moment, and so it's quite exciting. Mm. And I see the byline um, is designing the future we decide. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, (laughs) I think we need to decide the future we want, and we need to work towards it. There are examples of countries, and, and forgive me if I, if I misquote on odd occasions because I, I haven't followed up on this for a long time, but I think that Finland many years ago made a decision. I should go back and research this. Finland, um, after it's had a civil war, I believe, mm. made a decision to collaborate as a nation to work together. This is amazing. We can make decisions about our future. Mm. It doesn't mean that we are draconian. I've been accused of being, you know, a little Hitler and draconian, you know. No, I don't have the answers. Hmm. I just know some of the questions we should ask. Yeah, and you've got to ask the right questions to get those answers, you've don't you? have got to, and if we're here to stimulate you and organisations and people to ask the right questions, hmm. I don't know what those questions are, but I certainly know the area in which you should be looking. Mm. Yeah? And you know the framework, the framework. around those principles yeah. that can help to guide Absolutely. those questions. And yeah. that's been a 15-year journey. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's not over yet. Mm. And I just want to pick up on something you said before, just using the time that you have available. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that mean for you? Well, there's physical time. <laughs> <laughs> I spend a lot of time on this journey thinking about it. Um, now I'm close to 70, I'm thinking, well, you better get on with it. Mm. But it is about legacy. I'm not personally worried 
I'm worried that we do understand what we can be in the world as a country and we we grasp that opportunity. Mm. And if I can play a small role in that, I'd my life would have purpose, mm. meaning. Mm. Right? That's what I'm ambitious about. Yeah, I've had an opportunity to make a lot of money in my life. It didn't mean much. Mm. You know? There's other values there. Yeah, and I, also I'm lucky enough to have a husband that I make go to work every day and mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I earn just enough to stay in trouble. Yeah, mm-hmm. oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. And just uh, we've mentioned the word purpose a couple of times. I, ta- mm-hmm. I, I called this podcast Seeds, the idea yes. that the conversations I'm having with people might inspire the people listening to maybe make changes in their lives because seeds look dead, but then they can grow, you know. <laughs> But um, we've mentioned the word purpose a couple of times, um, and I just wonder what your thoughts are on that word. I, th- I think I know the answer, that it's getting to be an overused term, um, but what's your feeling about the word purpose? First of all, my worries about it being an overused term are simply, just ignore those. I mean, it's just a, simply a silly reaction, I guess. I think that the fact is the term is used a lot means a lot of people are thinking about it, mm-hmm. and that's great. Um, Purpose. I think purpose is really about something bigger than you. For me, it is about that. So what is the future of this this idea? I don't, I'm happy not, I'm comfortable that I might not see it out myself. What the challenge is, is to find people to carry it on. And it might be in a completely different shape because our needs change over time. Communication style changes, Resources change, the country hopefully will change. Yeah. So I, I'm very happy to have this as a goal in my life. That it's not about, you know, what colour will I have my hair this week? That, that's fine. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And what, do you, what, do you, what are your dreams or hopes for the future with the Britain Institute, like in, I don't know, in five years? <laughs> I had a goal that when I was 70 and I've only got... Um, a few meagre months to get there, is that we would have the uh, online course up and running in a a partnership Mm -hmm. and that we'll be able to demonstrate that we can bring in an income because we can't do anything else. We've got lots of other ideas, but they can't happen without an income. We are a social enterprise. We have to earn our way. I'm not Mm -hmm. good at the charity thing. I don't desire it. I don't desire the the the, the handbrake of it, mm. you know, because you, be, you need to be able to pivot. When you apply for funding, you apply for it. You know, you have a criteria, and often that changes, and you can't do it. So it has to be private, in my view, and it has to be um, New Zealand citizens who care about the future of this country. So yeah, I I think. Possibly down the track, others will think differently about that. That's how I feel mm. right now. Um, getting some income, regular income, is really critical right now. What we would like to do down the track, when we have an income, is to set up a John Britton scholarship for kids who think differently. Um, you know, if we don't do it within the next few years, no one will remember who he was anyway, so it probably lose its meaning. But I do believe that there are a lot of young people out there who are not heard 
because they don't fit. And that's sad. Mm. That's really sad. We need them. Mm. We need ideas from different quarters completely. We need ideas that reflect different people's lives and their perspectives. So, yeah. Mm. That's great. And it's interesting to me how when you started talking about your uncle on the West Coast, that he welcomed artists and creatives and and challenged you to think in your own way, you know, and, sure. and to challenge assumptions. It sounds like that's really been an influence right through your life. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's not comfortable for a lot of people. Mm. Uh, my family found it, always found it hard. Mm. <laughs> uh, but that's the way you're wired. You have to make the best of what you're given. Mm. And mine is to be an inquirer. And um, uh, to be honest, I think I'm interested in too many things. <laughs> I have to qu- keep shrinking and then it sort of expands out again and then I have to shrink right. my world. No, but yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, is there anything else that you want to just share or, or talk about? Oh, only that I've just come back from a few weeks in the States and I'm more and more convinced that we have an opportunity I did a post on LinkedIn the other day that's got quite a few people commenting on it that how are we different? How is New Zealand different? I mean, the US has amazing forests, um, has amazing mountains, has amazing rivers. So if we just promote those things, is that really a point of difference? What is our point of difference? Mm. And I and I think we need to dwell on this. We had the flag debate, when was it, last year or the year before? It was too soon. We don't fully understand what it is that we can offer the world. I don't think, personally, I think we have to take care of our mountains, rivers, and um, and whatever else, forests. We have to. That's part of being real thinking human beings and they're integral to that but it isn't what makes us different Mm. it's people Mm. and so I think we need to get more of a understanding of that Mm. and and it sounds like educating people helping them to understand purpose yeah and also having a place at the table for a diverse range of voices yes that's that's sort of the future that yeah. We might get to. Yeah. I think there's a fear out there in business that if you ask too many people, it'll just be a rabble. So you have to have a process for it. Mm. That's what started me off thinking about this is that, okay, we have more diverse voices. How do we handle it? You've got to have a process. Mm. Otherwise, it will be a rabble. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. It's been fascinating hearing about your life hearing about your influences and then what you're involved in now and what purpose means. So if people want to find out more about the Britain Institute, you've got a great web page which has resources. Um, is there any other ways that you wanted to mention? Oh, they can always contact me, dorenda at britain.org.nz. Happy to, to talk. Uh, that's my job. Um, is to promote and, and build bridges and understanding. So I'd be very happy to talk to anyone. Yeah. yeah, great. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining today. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed the challenges that Dorinda laid out in that interview, and in particular, her use of the word design and what it means in terms of critical thinking. And I think there was a lot that we talked about that would be applicable no matter what you do. Now, in next week's episode, we're going to be speaking with Sam Broughton, who's the mayor of Selwyn District. 
and we talk a lot with him about his background and how he came to be one of the youngest mayors in New Zealand. It's a really fascinating conversation, and here's an excerpt from the interview with him. The stuff's not yours. You know, you're a caretaker of mm. of the time that you've got on earth um, with the things that you've got, and one day you'll pass them on to someone else and mm. hopefully do a good job with the time that, that you've got them for. Uh, and I guess the idea of Papa too and, you know, looking back and knowing who my family have been and, mm-hmm. um, yeah, appreciating what they've done. It's, and I, I'm the mayor at the moment and get to wear these mayoral chains right. uh, every now and again. And uh, on there are the names of the previous mayors. Mm. And, yeah, I quite like when I put them on, which is not very often, but at council meetings, just recognising that there's a lot of good people that have gone before us that mm. open up the opportunities we have today. And, yeah, we're just the next part of the story now. And, mm. you know, hopefully people will recognise the good work we do. Um, that has opened up opportunities for them, you know, those 50 years, 100 years from now, um, yeah, we're inputting into that. Well, I do hope you can join me for that conversation with Sam. And in the meantime, this is a word of mouth podcast. So if you found it was helpful, then why not tell a friend? Until next time. Mm-hmm.